Hi, this is Eugene with Ask Matt. Today we have a special episode. I recently was a guest on the Pod of Gold podcast with Stephanie Overbeck and Mel Wymore, and they wanted to learn more about Green Ninja and whether education could play a role in promoting a more inclusive, prosperous, and sustainable future. The answer is yes, and the discussion was fascinating. The Pot of Gold podcast is created to inspire creative activism and social innovation, as they believe the successful evolution of human society will require a profound transformation of the systems that shape our behavior. Here's the interview. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Stephanie Overbuck. I'm Mel Wymore. And this is Pot of Gold. How do you get people to act together on climate change? One way is through education. But despite clear science on the issue, climate change is not a part of many school curriculums. Enter Green Ninja. In this episode, we're speaking with Eugene Cordero, a professor at San Jose State University who's created a science curriculum for middle school students that highlights environmental stewardship. Eugene believes that with a deep understanding of science, the environment, and our relationship to nature, we can work together toward a healthier planet. Hi, I'm Eugene Cordero. I'm a professor in the Department of Meteorology and Climate Science at San Jose State University. And I call myself a climate scientist and spent a couple decades studying the climate system, um, but then became aware that, you know, solutions are really what get me excited about thinking about climate change. And the only thing that I seem to be, you know, have some kind of aptitude for was education and teaching. And so that's what led me to, to start to study education in terms of solutions to climate change, led me to like co-author a cookbook about food and climate change, which led to quirky films about, you know, Green Ninja, a superhero, takes action on climate change, and led to creating educational materials for schools. Um, but still with that research hat on, that I want to make sure, we want to make sure that these educational materials are effective, that they're creating real change, but to make it fun and, and interesting along the way as well. So that's um, a quick summary of what I've been up to and, and interest, my interests um, are aligned in those areas. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. For, from my perspective, we've really not been educating about climate change, especially to children, even though we've known it's coming for many, many decades. And now finally, I think we have consensus that climate change is real. <laughs> we got to move quickly. Uh, what do you see as the gaps in education regarding climate change? And how can we, you know, how can we really change the way that educational system works so our kids are armed to deal with this in the future? Yeah, it's a great question and something we've, we've thought about a lot. If you look at how kids learn about science in general, it's primarily through textbooks in, in schools. And when you look at the textbooks, uh, they're very traditional. They, they teach science and, and, and issues like climate change are changing quite rapidly. And if you write a textbook once every 15 years, you may not be able to like latch onto that. Um, and then they also steer away from anything that could be contrived as controversial. And our society has done a good job making climate change controversial, making it somewhat politicized. And I think that's why most textbook companies kind of just back off and won't talk about it too much. And if you're in a state like Texas or Florida that says we don't want that content in there, they'll take it out. Uh, so a large segment of our youth population don't have very much access to real climate change science. 
that's changing. The next generation science standards are, are much better, but still not enough, in, in my opinion, and in the and based on the research that we've been doing, that you know one week at the end of a, a unit on weather is not going to really move the needle. Like it's a much more challenging and interesting subject. Uh, and probably the best approach would be something more like New Jersey. They have some recent um, policy that says that climate change should be taught in all subjects at all grades. And for example, Italy, Mexico, some other countries have, have kind of tried to do that systemically throughout their education. So we are, um, it's happening. And in fact, next week, I'm going to Sacramento here to the Capitol here in California to be um, to give some expert testimony for a climate change education bill that California is considering, which is to, to have climate change be taught in all grades and, uh, and to, to make it more, not just the science, but the solutions as well. And I think that's a really important component because when we do see climate change taught in schools, it's primarily about the problems, the impacts, and very little about solutions. And our research has shown that that's, that can really be limiting for, for students. Yeah, and also it's so much more hopeful to be talking about solutions. You know, I, I think we all get a little overwhelmed when all we talk about are the problems of climate change. And, and unfortunately, that is where the controversy has, has emanated from, that the, the, the diagnosis of the problem and maybe focusing on solutions will eliminate the controversy as well. I, I've, I've said for a long time that I would love to have honest and careful and scientific and engineering related debates about solutions to climate change even maybe we don't do anything that's the solution too that's once you acknowledge that there's a problem but we've spent the last couple of decades uh arguing about whether it's happening whether it's humans those are good arguments you know 20 years ago but today you know the science is very very clear so i agree that that we should be focusing on solutions and i learned in my own teaching that um that that's the most hopeful part that my students at the university would would take from the course is something about oh here's what here's what we can do about it and that's much more that that lasts much longer with students it's much more impactful than a sole focus on the science so in your with green ninja and the educational program you've basically focused on kids right starting around 12 i think right <laughs> more or less so have you kind of given up on the adults? I haven't given up on adults. I'm somewhat an optimist. So I, I think, and I work with amazing adults and I meet folks like yourselves all the time. So I definitely haven't given up. But the, the reason that we were drawn to youth is that they are, they, they have, you know, six hours a day of education that they're going to do for a number of years. So in a way, they're, they're an audience that is open to learning new things. And we focused originally on middle school because uh, middle schoolers are still like excited about almost anything and have fun and uh, but are making critical decisions, unintended critical decisions about whether they're they like science, they're good at science, science is for them. Um, by high school, a lot of students already have learned somehow, discovered or been told, oh, you're not good at science, science isn't for you, or it's not that helpful, you should do other things. So we want to reach students before that time, um, when they're open to anything, open to continuing to be curious about the world and trying to understand what's going on. 
Could you give us an example of kind of the rough curricular elements that you try to focus on when you talk about solutions? You know, I know with us, we often talk about causality here in on Pot of Gold, like, you know, the economic underpinnings of climate change and some solutions as well, but also addressing those kind of root causes. And from a science perspective, I think you're focusing more on exactly how do we reverse this carbon emissions. And what, I wonder if you could walk us through what the elements of that are. Yeah, our program at Green Ninja is a standards aligned, you know, full curriculum. So it's everyday science in the classroom. So it's earth science and life science and physical science and engineering, um, just like the textbooks that come from the large publishers. But the difference of our approach is that students are learning those sciences for a reason. And that reason is to solve some local environmental problem. So for example, in the eighth grade, when they're studying physics of motion, uh, they're learning about how um, transportation uses energy and how a bus uses different amount of energy than a single occupancy vehicle versus a helicopter versus a cruise ship. And then they're, they're learning about forces and friction and about um, energy. And then at the end of this unit, they take what they've learned and try to, to do something in their own community to improve the efficiency of transportation in relationship to you know, the, the use of fossil fuels um, for moving most, most things around in transportation. So you're right, we, we kind of look at from a scientific standpoint, we don't really go back to the root causes of like, you know, why have we designed the system around cars in California, for example, um, but we're really looking at the impacts and are there ways to do something about those impacts using the science that students have learned. So that's how we, we approach um, all areas of science and engineering through the lens of can we create some local solutions um, in that community? Because when, when students do that, they start to see that science is relevant, uh, but they also develop some agency, some personal agency like, gosh, I can make a difference here. And there we find in our research, they're much more interested in continuing that exploration about the connection between ourselves and, and the natural world. Um, and, and our research has also shown that even longer term, years later, their behaviors are different as a result of those experiences. So that's, that's the, the framework that we use in our program. It, it sounds like it's opening up so much inspiration, even for yourself, right? Like maybe you're looking, or maybe I misunderstood, but it, it sounds like it. It sounds like a lot of inspiration. Are the questions and the inquiries coming from those younger students? really different? Have you experienced uh, any kind of opening up for yourselves where he's like, oh, I haven't considered that, what's coming back? Or did you expect it to be like that? It's very un unconventional, let's put it this way. <laughs> yeah, we were a little surprised. We, we had been tinkering with educational frameworks in our own university classes for a few years uh, and starting to notice that, uh, that, that some, some type of educational experience is better than others. And when we, when we kind of step back and let students do the, the, the real interesting work, which is what am I gonna do in my community? We, we equip them with some science fundamentals. We give them some understanding about cause and, cause and effect and, and what's going on, but then let them be the architects or the designers of solutions that matter to them. Then that experience seemed to be uh, very meaningful for students. And they took that with them and, we document in, in some of our research and, 
in a documentary even we created about you know students changing their careers and doing different things as a result of those experiences so yeah it's been it's it's and then we see it happening with middle school kids doing amazing things telling amazing stories um, doing great work and now I wouldn't say we expect it, but we, we celebrate it when we see it. And yeah. it comes through the teachers. The teachers share it with us and say, look at what, look what our students have done today. <laughs> I just read a quote saying, if you're unsure about what you want to do with your life, become a climate advocate. So that was, <laughs> like, that was like, everyone's next job should be climate advocate. Um, could you give us an example or two about kind of the projects, the local projects you've seen pop up in, after kids are involved in this curriculum? I'll give you a couple examples. One is a, a long-term thing we've been doing. We host the Green Ninja Film Festival. We, I think we're, this will be the ninth year that we've been doing this. And this is an opportunity for students to advocate for climate solutions outside of the classroom, so more broadly on YouTube or, or through film. Uh, we give students uh, some instruction, of course, on the science, but also about communication and then about storytelling and filmmaking. And then uh, we also might mentor them a little bit on their story design, but we basically let them tell a story in whatever medium they, they want to. And the films that have come out of the film festival continue to just impress me and maybe we can share with some of your listeners a, a link to one of the playlists on YouTube that's out there. But wonderful films, even during the pandemic when students couldn't physically be together, the films that were, that were being created um, are really interesting. They use different media, um, but they all share uh, a, a real concern for let's do something about climate change um, and different approaches from tree planting to not driving as much or recycling or, or whatever it is. Um, but really enjoyed the element of them telling their own story for their own community. Uh, so that's that's kind of on, on one example, but kind of in the same theme. Uh, last year, a teacher said to us, "Oh, um, uh, one of my students uh, created this, um, wrote the song for for the folks at Green Ninja, and wanted um, you to see this." And it was really interesting. The student um, sang a song and, and was playing the piano, and it was about uh, air pollution and climate change. But what really struck me is the student was saying, and this is a seventh grader, um, you know, why do I have to deal with this? Why is this a my burden? And it was really interesting for me because, uh, of course, that's not our intention to burden the youth with, you know, some problems that we've been, you know, um, participating in. Um, but what it, what it shared with me is, is that this is really connecting to some students at very personal levels. Um, we do need to provide students with a way to step back sometimes and say, look, I, I want to just be a kid today too, and I don't want to have to be burdened with all of this. Um, but to also realize that once, once students realize this, they're going to take it in, in different ways. And um, so that was impactful for our team to see it. It was, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful song, but I, I also understood a little bit of frustration, which, you know, creative artists, that's part of what they do in the arts is, is they're critiquing what's going on. It's not always completely happy. Well, and it is true. You know, we, we've been knowing about climate change for decades and we know about it. We don't really do much, not as, as a global village. You know, I think it's a global problem. We've been knowing it for, I don't know how many years. I think I first came across as when I was teenager in the 80s. <laughs> But what do you do? 
And what do international agencies do? Right? I think there's so much uncoordination. Yes, of course, there's a little bit done, but on a global level, it, you know, and so <laughs> I think the kid is right. <laughs> why us? Why, why is it now being passed to the next generation? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, that's why one of the reasons I love your local uh, orientation, because, I, and I guess that this, this kind of flows into the next question I had is about anxiety. You know, we recently have come across um, climate psychologists, right? Or yeah. have a psychoclimatology. I don't remember how it goes, <laughs> but basically this uh, trend of people becoming quite anxious about climate change and feeling quite pa- paralyzed. And I love that you're giving, you know, concrete ways to deal with that by engaging in media, engaging in local community projects. But do you also have part of your curricula um, talking about fear and how to deal with that? Yeah, it's a good question. And we, I wouldn't say we've done a, a, a great job of that so far. One area that we have done this year with some of our teachers is we've given them some specific training about how to talk about and frame climate for youth. Um, and that's actually coming from a third party that, that specializes on, on communication about climate. And, uh, and hopefully that helps give teachers the kind of the toolkit for helping their students, um, and, or especially some students who might, who might find this especially troubling. Uh, I think the other piece that, that I have found to be helpful is to work, to, is to develop a community, is not to feel alone with this. And so that when students work together on projects or the whole classroom is involved in this and then they bring other people to see what their solutions look like or to to participate in some way, uh, I think some folks don't feel as alone and as and as isolated. Um, So there's so we are doing something about it. We are a community. And if the government is too slow, maybe we can do it. That's where the local element to it Um, and, and we call this hyperlocal too, because some of the local is your own home, it's your own school. It's like what couldn't, what would matter more than than what happens in your home and school. Um, but it is a real issue about anxiety, and and that was that 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 um, a storyteller who was who was sharing the song um, illustrated that, that 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 was something that this the student was kind of grappling with, um, and this teacher told me that. He has also told some students, it's okay, you don't have to go to the Friday, they have this Friday first thing that they go and, and protest every Friday. You don't have to do that. You know, you, you, you can, you, the climate's gonna be around a long time. There'll be lots of opportunities to be engaged and participate. And we just wanna help teachers feel comfortable having those conversations. How difficult has it been for you to integrate your curriculum into schools in California? And how do you see that process evolving over time with other schools? Uh, has it been easy, hard? We have found it kind of difficult to, um, to sh- it's like steering a barge to uh, change any curricula, a very long process. How have you gone about it? Yeah, I, when I got interested in, in when we started developing Green Ninja Films um, for teachers, it was nice a teacher could use it and, 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 and some really enjoyed some of the materials we were producing. But over and over, we would find that uh, a teacher would say, gosh, I'd love to use Green Ninja more, but our school district is using you know, Pearson or McGraw-Hill. And so, it, so the principal said, you could use it at the end of the school year for a week or something like that. And that's what ultimately led us to say, well, we want to be the science provider. We want to be the, the daily science 
um, curriculum. And, but be, and it is a real challenge to get into that position because once you, um, to, to be the, the textbook provider for science um, in the school district, you have to go through, you know, we had to go up and submit our materials to the California Department of Education to be adopted by the state. Um, we are one of 11 science publishers in California that can sell curriculum. Uh, and so there's a long lead process before you, you actually get a, a, a district partnership. The good thing is, is once you do have that partnership, you have it for many years. So they're, gonna, they're not gonna change science curriculum until the standards come out again. So it might be eight or 10 years. So you can develop these lasting relationships. But working with school districts, everyone is different. Everyone has their own kind of concerns and, and what's important for them. And that's why a lot of my colleagues were like, I'd go for informal education. I'd go with the museums and I'd go with, you know, working in schools is, is really challenging. Um, as you guys, I'm sure, know as well. Um, but there are real rewards, and the teachers are wonderful, and, the, and, and there's a lot of committed people in schools that really care. Um, but it's about understanding their needs and, and what's important for a school. So you've been in the, in the California schools, I presume, what, five years or so? Or? It's really about three years. That three years, okay. Three years, yeah. So it's been not quite long enough to see kind of long-term impacts of this education on one's outlook or behavior. But are you set up to measure kind of longitudinal impacts on kids and the way they evolve as adults and how they operate in society? Well, you mentioned a really important word, and that is longitudinal. And that is the thing that's really hard, and you don't see that many studies that, that do these longitudinal studies. Uh, I just had a proposal rejected by the National Science Foundation a couple months ago to do just that. Um, but we got really good reviewers' comments, so we're going to resubmit again. Um, and we, we want to do that work. As, you know, like I said, when I put my science hat um, on, I want to see what type of impacts this type of educational approach is having. Um, and I'm also interested in that, how you do those measurements. And so in the, in the paper we published a couple years ago, we had a methodology for, for studying how students, their carbon emissions, we were able to quantify the, the impact of an educational experience even five years after um, they had graduated from university. And we want to continue to do more of that work. So we actually have some other research projects that are um, looking at developing tools for, for how would you do that? Because I think that ultimately, the goal would be that, and I think we're starting to see this, that, that this type of education won't just happen in K-12. It'll start to happen in college. It might happen after school, but it also hopefully will happen in the corporate workplace and in organizational workplaces. Like, oh, you should take a class in sustainability so we can, we can think a little bit differently about our connection and our company's connection. Um, and it would seem natural to me that if you could measure the efficacy of those educational experiences, that that could make them, you know, make them better experiences ultimately, um, and give some uh, credibility. And so we're working on, on developing some tools to do those things as well. Yeah, I'd be so excited to see how an education like this ultimately changes the consumer behavior. In other words, you know, when, when children are raised to think about the environment and then now they're going to have much more awareness about what types of products they're buying and put pressure on companies that are not basically doing the right 
um, thing and relative to their production processes or and so I you know it's I think I we are so excited to come across you as someone who's really focusing long term on shifting you know uh, our our mindset you know you have to start young it doesn't happen necessarily to adults we're inured to convenience no matter what <laughs> at least in America we are and, and uh, I think that's a really hard thing to change once you're used to something being so easy well it's almost interesting that through kids you know it comes the knowledge goes back to the parents uh, or the pressure is then put on the parents yeah. and what to do and what's right and maybe what not to go for or what to buy or <laughs> or where to go on vacation you know do we really need to fly to, <laughs> to somewhere you know and all that kind of um changes happening from within rather than put on <laughs> Yeah. That is absolutely right. And that's, that's what's really interesting. Um, and and what we think about too, when we think about how to measure. Um, I'll just give you my, my, another kind of like vision. And I'm seeing it happen in a couple districts we're working with right now. But not only would we hope that over, you know, let's say a five to 10 year period, you might see, you know, uh, transportation behaviors change within a community that's starting to think a little bit more, the, the students are starting to think about, oh, how I get to school. And, and um, so you might see some behavior of transportation changing. And, and I would expect to see behaviors within the homes changing because students, they study, they use their home as a lab in a few of the different units and looking at energy use and, and consumption. But that you would also see the physical landscape of the school's um, sites change because we have an outdoor education component to our program. And I know this, this term, they're, they're planting gardens in their schools and, and there's ideas starting to percolate about, oh, maybe we get rid of some of the concrete and maybe we plant more trees, uh, especially because it's becoming extra hot in the summer and it makes sense from an energy perspective. So uh, I was telling my colleague who does satellite meteorology, I said, you know, we're gonna be looking at these schools um, from satellite view, you know, every year um, and we have those records and that could be another way of measuring success because the school district and the schools are a part of a system and uh, and something that everyone's really bought into you know parents all care about the education of their of their children and so when we when we write letters to parents saying oh can can your child study your your home in terms of energy or something it's going to help them with their learning always say yes because the, every parent cares about the learning of their child um, but then that learning starts to like influence behavior. It starts to influence um, what's happening in the in the home, and the same thing can happen with the school as well. So um, we're very interested in in measuring and tracking and learning from that, adjusting our program to make it even better, and, and sharing it with with other people to hopefully replicate other places. What we'd like to discuss next is really about the urgency of climate change. And, you know, there's this, this overarching pr time clock or pressure or race that's happening. And um, you really are playing the long game here. And, you know, I really, we, we believe education is absolutely key to any of this stuff. But how do you deal with that? How, and what is your projection for the future in terms of really transforming the way we behave to solve this before it's too late. And I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that's weighed on, on not just myself, but all climate scientists who study this. And we continue to, you know, here goes another decade and here's another, you know, it's, it's not getting better. Um, so to, to really think about that, I think it might be somewhat um, 
emotionally challenging to think, gosh, our progress isn't nearly as fast as we need to. And at least for myself, one of the ways to, to get on with it is to try to do something, is to try to take some action. And when, when my neighbors say, oh, what, what should I do? You know, it's, it's a first step. It's, you know, thinking about what can you do in, in terms of your diet or what can you do in terms of your transportation. Um, and, and I really feel it's a stepping stone, that it's, that it's a series of small steps. Um, but certainly I, I feel the urgency too. And, um, and I do believe that, that, and I'm excited, that youth are actually playing an active role. Like who, who's the global leader right now in terms of climate advocacy? You know, Greta. And how old is she? You know, she's not very old. And, and the folks who follow her are high schoolers and middle schoolers. I mean, that's amazing that those are the folks who are driving things, who are pushing for more rapid change. So in some way, I'm happy to get out of the way and, and, and support them in, in any way they can, uh, or any way we can, um, through education and through, you know, whatever kind of support we can provide. But in terms of urgency, I also feel it um, at Green Ninja. So we did a little calculation a few months ago that 20 million students in the country are going to have their textbooks decided in the next three years because there's these new science standards and uh, the school districts are going to make decisions about about those textbooks and and then they're not going to change those textbooks for the next decade and so when you mention the word urgency i feel it like we want to allow school districts to have one option at least that's a little bit different, that uses the environment, that thinks about nature in a, in a different way. Um, and so at Green Ninja, we're, we're in an active campaign today to, um, to, to build you know, a, a, a coalition to, to really be active in states around the country. Um, we have a, a start engine campaign. We're raising equity right now. Um, and so we can be more competitive in states around the country and we can improve our product and, and our sales and marketing. So I think it's just an example that, that um, in whatever space we're in, in whatever area we're doing, we all care about climate, to, to make progress um, in whatever way we can and not put the, the full urgency on all of ourselves individually, but say, here's what I'm going to do and here's some significant things I, I'm going to do the next car I purchase, the next time I think about my holiday, um, and then the next time I go buy a burrito or, or, or some food or something like that. There's all different levels that we can be involved in that. Let me think. I, I've been interested of, if there is one impact you're really looking for, is there, or is there one? You really like what you said you have this vision and what, can you can you explain or can you say what is the one thing, one outcome you would really, really hope, even if, the, if it's not there yet, but something you would really hope for? What would that be? Gosh, just one. That's a good question. A couple of things come to mind, so I'm, I'm going to not answer one. But I, in, in, in terms of being an educator, those critical thinking skills are are really important. And, you know, I think all educators want that, of course. Um, we want that with, with an understanding of what the environment really is and how it supports, you know, humans and how we live and how fragile it is and how we have to take care of it. Um, and some people call the sustainability a triple bottom line kind of framework. But if, if we could get 
young people and, and middle-aged people and older folks to think about this triple bottom line, about the environment, about economics, and about people when they make decisions, when they think about things, um, when they vote in certain ways. Uh, that would be, I think, really, really helpful. And so we, we talk about sustainability and green initiative with middle school, and we, we plan to do it when we develop our, our um, K-5 program. Um, because it's, it's a way of thinking not just and solely about price or not solely about how it's marketed. It's, it's a think more holistically. And I, so that, if I got the magic wand, um, that would be the outcome because I think it's, it, it, what we need is a, is a systemic change in how we think about ourselves and our relationship to nature. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I've recently, you know, we, we have a lot of conversation with um, the spectrum of people in the climate, also in the climate um, um, yeah, field, let's call it field. <laughs> um, and recently I came across someone who's a Russian scientist and we got, before the episode, we got into a long conversation uh, phone call and it ended up with basically him thinking that democracy may not be the best solution for us to organize society in order to overcome the really quite complexity of problems we are currently facing and the rapid deterioration we have been going through. So it's, in short terms, very much quicker than everyone thought. And we got, and I was like, okay, interesting. What do you think about this? <laughs> well, it's a, you know, I could imagine that a benevolent dictator could could be a good, you know, way to get us through this, uh, certainly in terms of the environment. Um, but I worry about our democracy here in our own country, about democracy, you know, globally. And I think a lot of my colleagues and I share this idea that if we lose our democracy here in this country, that the climate is not going to be the winner. So I, I'm, I, I feel very aligned to, to preserving our democracy as much as possible, and also because I have faith in humanity. Now, I am an optimist, so you know I could understand people feeling like we're not going to do it on our own, um, and we're, we're going to need either the government to like mandate this, um, or we're going to have to to tech our way out of it and develop some new technologies that that suck carbon out of the air or whatever. And I can understand those sentiments as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it's. Uh... The challenge we have it is a complex challenge because there's the science part, there's the economic part or the commercial part, and then there's also the part of organizing people to move in the same direction. And I think at the bottom of all that is education. Like if you can educate everyone to have the basic principles in place, you have a much higher chance of even in a democracy having people kind of move in the same direction against climate change or some of the problems we face. I wanted to ask you your opinion of how we got here and, and you know, just how do you deal with how we got here to the current state of affairs with kids? And you know, does that improve, does that help the education or does it hinder the education to talk about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, from, from a science standpoint, uh, you know, 40 years ago, actually, my, my science introduction into the atmosphere was through the ozone hole and ozone depletion. 
And so I worked at NASA Goddard and I did some research and even in Australia. And we understood the science. We, you know, we'd done all these measurements and yep, humans are responsible through these chemicals. And pretty quickly, after we showed all the graphs and charts to the policymakers, they enacted protocols to phase out ozone depleting chemicals. So we kind of naively thought that when we study climate change and, and have the same kind of scientific understanding of what's going on, that the same thing would happen, that we would, you know, phase out, you know, uh, carbon emitting activities. And yet it, it didn't happen because it was so central to our economy. Um, so from my standpoint, how we got here is that we, you know, got addicted to cheap forms of energy and, and it benefited, you know, billions of people that. But now we're, of, of course, realizing that it's that we need to change and we need to do something different. And that's hard to do and change is hard in this large, large system. So does that help with the story? Um, I think it does because we, we actually have solutions to this. It doesn't mean we have to live like we did 400 years ago, but, um, but it doesn't make it any easier. And, and the forces that are involved are, you know, are significant in terms of making this change. So, um, and I have witnessed and watched some of my colleagues kind of come around to understanding how this is working too, because two decades ago, there were still lots of uncertainties. A decade ago, the uncertainties are much lower. So the science is much, much clearer today than it was 30 years ago. Um, and, and makes all climate scientists feel very comfortable with, with the status right now that humans are responsible for the majority of, the, of these changes. So, but, but that we, we'd lost three decades kind of going back and forth about that. Um, and now we, we really realize that, that the time to act is, is right now. Well said. We've known about climate change for so long. It's amazing to me that it's 2022 and we are just now putting climate change science. Because it got so bad that we can't avoid it anymore. Yeah, but why didn't we have it there already? It's just crazy to me. I mean, it's great that, that, that he's doing it. I love that. And I think we need it everywhere. And, you know, we do it too, right? We, we're, all, we're all for education about climate change, but it's a long, it's a long game. I love what he said about, you know, democracy and climate change. Because the big challenge isn't real. We have solutions. We know what to do. The big challenge isn't that. The big challenge is making everyone act in unison, right? Is that currently going well, you think, in our democracies? No, it's not. But he seems very hopeful about it. And, you know, it's, it's, inter it's an interesting question to me. I mean, you know, now we are, we are talking in the context of currently sort of a war going on in, in, in Europe. And it's, it's, for me, we've, we've like stepped back for decades, right? Like, we now we actually doing what Evelyn, what in the first, very, very, very first episode we ever did on this podcast with Evelyn Lindner. And she talks about what's it called again, the, the conflict. Uh, the the security dilemma. Yes, right. And this is exactly what's happening again. Yeah, on a very very big scale. And climate change has, in in you know, of course, it's, it has nothing to say. You know, on 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 that on that, it, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, it it's like we we are like we are putting our money in defense. Um, there are atrocities happening in, in Ukraine and 
of course climate change is off the table. Yeah. Well, but but I'm I'm hardened by the fact, I mean, this pointing, or it was poignant when he says, if democracy loses, probably the planet will also lose. And that's an interesting question. You, like, I guess if you care about people having a say, then you probably also care about nature having a, a say. Yeah, but don't you think this is exactly what's happening today? Like, I think we are actually losing our democracies. Um, I'm not going to turn this podcast into a political thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank oh, goodness. Oh, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you speak about democracies, right? But I think this is exactly what's happening. We are losing our democracies and we're losing our planet. I feel like we're on the same page as Eugene, which is we've got to teach the the younger generation. We've got a jammed up political system that can't make those kind of agile decisions, which is what I think, you know, Eugene and all the rest of us are getting to. Like, We're grownups aren't really good at making decisions together. We've got to teach kids how to do it better. Yeah, I guess what, what we are doing with education is to really prepare a foundation for developing a different kind of approach. And that next generation has to shift things drastically. And whatever leadership... Amen, sister. Whatever leadership is coming. <laughs> we are an independent, listener-supported podcast. Brought to you by Game Changers. www.gamechangers.world For the price of one latte per month, you can help fuel our work and keep our content untainted by commercial interests. For more exclusive content, join us on patreon.com or click donate on partofgold.world. Thanks to our producer, Riley Paul. I'm Mel Wymore. And I'm Stephanie Overbeck. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.